Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, September 12th. Uh, this is Doug Taylor. Great to have you with us tonight. Uh, and so we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13. <clears throat> Again, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13. And the verse reads, A heart that is happy causes his face to be glad, but a sad heart, or a depressed heart, uh, then he has a broken spirit. So let me read that one more time. A heart that is happy causes his face to be glad, but a sad heart, then he has a broken spirit. So as we do generally in these classes, you probably all know what the next thing I'm going to ask is, which is, what are the questions? What kinds of questions come to mind that we would raise here to try to understand what King Solomon's trying to teach us in this verse? A heart that is happy causes his face to be glad, but a sad heart, then he has a broken spirit. What do you think? Okay, Linda Good. How is a heart happy? What does that mean? A heart, happy heart or a glad heart? What is that about? Good question. What else? Any others? Okay, Vicky, good. How can a spirit be broken? What does that mean? When it says you have a broken spirit, I mean, uh, we, we sort of get a picture in our mind of that, but it's not terribly precise. So what does that mean? And Linda, what does that have to do with your face? Yeah. Heart that is happy causes his face to be glad, but then a sad heart seems to lead to a broken spirit. So you would almost think that it should say, a heart that is happy causes his face to be glad, and a sad heart causes his face to be sad. But King Solomon doesn't, be, doesn't seem to be relating those two. Uh, why does the second half refer to a sad, uh, doesn't refer to a sad face? So we've got this comparison between a glad face and a broken spirit. Good questions. Okay, Rashi has an interesting approach to this. Rashi says that when it says a glad heart, it means that if you gladden the heart of God, then he will cause you to have a glad face, which means he will make you happy. But if you cause God to have a sad heart, then he will cause you to be depressed. And Rashi brings a proof uh, for this from when God saw what was happening with the flood. It says that God's heart was saddened by what he saw. Uh, and then he uh, destroyed uh, virtually all of mankind through the flood. So, now that kind of raises some interesting questions, because when Rashi says that you make God happy, of course God doesn't have emotions, so it means that when you do the will of God, then God will make you happy, and when you don't do the will of God, then you'll have a broken spirit. So Rabbi Moskowitz, and I have to, to reiterate that I'm sharing with you the, uh, the ideas of Rabbi Moskowitz, who's been my uh, teacher in the study of Proverbs for about the last 20 years. Uh, 
And Rabbi Moskowitz asked the question, what is this doing in Proverbs? I mean, it doesn't really belong here. It, this kind of thing would seem like belongs in the Chumash, the, the five books of the written Torah, where God gives the blessings and the curses to the Jews. I mean, the book of Proverbs is a very practical book that deals with situations in everyday life where a person has to investigate his immediate desires versus the long-range consequences. But this idea seems to belong in the Chumash, where it talks about if you do these commandments, you'll get blessings, and if you don't, then you'll get curses. So we want to understand why is this in Proverbs altogether. And Rabbi Moskowitz holds that the answer is that the Torah holds that a person must make an evaluation about everything he does in life. We must evaluate the good and the bad. And even in the realm of Torah, in the analysis of Torah, and whether or not we should live the life of Torah, we should analyze that as well. So, for example, suppose you have a proof of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Even if you have that, the Torah still holds that even if you know the Torah is true, you must make an evaluation to see the benefit of the life of Torah from every different aspect. Proverbs deals with everyday life, so you should never do anything without evaluating, without evaluating the benefits and the harm from every different angle. And after you analyze that totally, then you should decide whether to do it or not. But nothing should be done on the spur of the moment without thought. Everything that we do ought to be done with an investigation, including the question of whether to live the Torah life or not. So what Rashi is saying is that this is true not only with regard to the events in everyday life, but also with regard to true religion. There may not be any doubt in your mind that the Torah is true religion, but you still should make an evaluation as to why that is the best life as opposed to any other life that there is out there. So in other words, it's, it's not a matter of accepting, accepting it like, well, you know, I don't know if this is the greatest life, but I know that if I do it, you know, I'm going to get to the world to come. That's not, that's not the approach. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that a person needs to know right here that this is the best life, that we should all evaluate the benefits to us in this life and in this world that the life of Torah is better than any other life, right here, right now. So, let me pause before I go on and make sure there are no questions on that. Any questions? All right, then, to illustrate this idea, let's go to Psalms 92. And let me just grab my copy here. Psalms 92, if you happen to have one in front of you. And the psalm is, uh, starts out and says that it is 
uh, a song, a psalm for the Sabbath day, which means that it's going to tell us something about the Sabbath. That's the first verse. Then the next five verses, up to and including verse 6, talk about how you should recognize God's works and what God does. So it reads, and I'm reading from the Art Scroll, It is good to thank Hashem and to sing praise to your name, O exalted one, to relate your kindness at dawn and your faith in the nights. Upon the Asur and upon the Nival, with singing accompanied by a harp. For you have gladdened me, Hashem, with your deeds. At the works of your hands I will sing glad song. How great are your deeds, Hashem! Exceedingly profound are your thoughts. So we could understand, if we stopped here, that the purpose of the Sabbath is to investigate God's works and to see the greatness of God. But then the psalm goes off on a tangent that has nothing to do with that. It says, and the fool doesn't know, and the fool doesn't understand this. That's in verse 7. Now the question is, what, what is this? What is the this that the fool doesn't know and understand? And according to Rashi and the Medusudis David and the Malbum, they hold that what the this is, is what follows in the psalm. And what follows says that the wicked flourish like grass and all the sinners flourish to destroy them forever. Now, that seems to be an oxymoron. I mean, they're successful to fail? I mean, success is the opposite of failure. So it says they flourish like grass and all the sinners flourish, and then it says to destroy them forever. So what does the verse mean that the success of the wicked is their failure? Now, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that the cause of success in everyday life, without God being involved, is wisdom. And he related how he once saw a TV show about Evil Knievel, the famous motorcycle daredevil, and how he did a certain trick, a certain stunt, which only took a minute or two. But he spent months working out all the dangers and all the difficulties. And if you watch the people who do these types of things, that's what they do. They very carefully plan them. They look at the physics. They do the, the geometric math. They, they look at how fast you know, the motorcycle will go, how far I have to go, what kind of a curve it's going to make, gravity, and all those kinds of things. And they very, very carefully plan it out. Again, looking at all the various factors involved, doing a complete analysis, and making sure that they've covered all the variables, looking at consequences. We see this uh, e even in crime. For, for somebody to be successful in crime, they have to work out all the details. Otherwise, the plan fails. So we see that in order to be successful in everyday life, you have to work out all of the details very, very clearly. Now, if a wicked person is successful, he doesn't attach it to the world of ideas. He attaches it to himself. In the beginning, he might work with ideas, and yes, he's got a plan, but slowly as he becomes more successful, 
his egomania starts to come out, and he starts attaching the success to himself, not to the planning and not to the analysis, not to the thought, not to the ideas, but he attaches it to himself. And then he starts feeling that whatever he does will be successful. He gets cocky, he gets arrogant, he gets what we call megalomania. Now, it says that a righteous person, a wise person's success is like a cedar. What does that mean? It means that he knows his success is based on wisdom. And therefore, he always has to make sure before he does anything that he has evaluated it. So, who is the fool who doesn't know this? The fool that we're talking about here is a person who accepts the Torah and accepts truth and goodness because he accepts that it's good, but he's still in conflict because he still thinks that the other people have some benefit in life, some benefit that he doesn't have. Yes, he's willing to live the life of Torah, to obey God in order to get a place in the world to come, or maybe to be in God's good graces, but when he looks at the evil people, uh, or people with uh, you know inappropriate fame or wealth, whatever he happens to be jealous of, inside he's thinking, oh, they really do have a better life than I do. So the fool is a person in conflict. And the reason why he's in conflict is because he doesn't realize that the other type of people, the people who don't live the life of Torah, he doesn't realize that they don't have a good life. It's only superficially that they're successful for a short time, and then they end up destroying themselves. And we've talked about before about how this type of life ultimately ends. It's not that the Torah is just saying that, you know, this isn't good and you shouldn't do it. It's saying, this isn't a good life right now in the physical world. This is, this is not positive for you. And, and so the fool is in conflict. He knows he ought to live the life of Torah, but he's still jealous of the other people. Okay, he still wants that kind of life. He thinks that he's missing out on something. And to him, it looks like, yeah, they got a really cool life, but i got to live under all these rules and stuff. And, okay, I guess I have to do this. But he's got this conflict because he really wants to be living the life of the wicked. Okay, let me pause. Any questions up till now? Okay, so then let's ask this question. If this is the, the, uh, the message, uh, the learning that we're getting here, what does this have to do with the Sabbath? I mean, this psalm started out, you know, by talking about uh, this is a, uh, a song with musical accompaniment for the Sabbath day. What does this have to do with the Sabbath? So Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, the Sabbath is a day of study and relationship to God. But it represents a total commitment to God. A person in conflict doesn't have that total commitment. He keeps the Torah and he relates to God, but he's in conflict about it. 
he still thinks the other people have something that is somehow beneficial in this world. He feels like they have something worthwhile. Therefore, he doesn't have a commitment to the life of Torah and to the ways of God. There's still a question in his mind about, you know, where is God's goodness in all this? And how come I don't get to live the best life? Because to him, the best life, you know, involves some of that stuff that the wicked folks have. So the fool, even though he accepts those things, is in conflict. And so it's not a total commitment. And what the Sabbath represents, according to King David, is that you must make a total commitment. And what a total commitment to God means, that I have no doubt that the other lives, other than the true life of Torah, are of no benefit. There's nothing for me to be jealous of there. And if a person is jealous of those, then he really doesn't understand uh, Torah. Now, the only way to make a total commitment, you can't like force yourself to do this if you don't really think it. Uh, and there's no point in, in trying because you're kind of playing games with yourself if you do that. You cannot force yourself into that place. It has to come about naturally. So the only way you can make a total commitment is to go through the various lifestyles that you feel jealous of the people that you feel jealous of, whatever it might be, somebody with fame, somebody with massive amounts of wealth, somebody with something that you don't have. And you need to analyze that and really see that there is no value in that lifestyle, but that the only real value is in the lifestyle of Torah. And this is what King Solomon is talking about in our verse in Proverbs, according to Rashi's interpretation that a person must make an evaluation of the life that he or she is living and recognize and see clearly that no other life is equal to the life of Torah. Your religion mustn't be that I accept God despite the fact that I have a terrible life here, but I'm going to stick it out with God anyway. Rather, the Torah life demands of us to make an evaluation of the religion to see that there is no life that's equal to the life of Torah, no other life equal to the life of Torah. So, again, it's not about accepting, well, I have a terrible life now, but God's going to reward me in the world to come. Rather, it is about us seeing that the life we're living is the best possible life that the physical world has to offer. That's what King Solomon uh, according to Rashi is saying here that we all have to make that evaluation. And again, the evaluation has to be a real evaluation. I can't fake this. I can't even fake it with myself. You know, and say, well, yeah, I know that. I really want to live that life, and I know that's really what I should do. And try to pretend with myself that that's the best life. Because that just doesn't work. The only way we can really get it is if we truly make the evaluation ourselves, and we're honest with ourselves about that evaluation, uh, and then we see the results naturally in the same way that when somebody shows you, you know, a mathematical equation that says um, 3 times x equals 6, and then derives for you that x has to equal 2, that's very clear to us. And there's no question in our minds. It's not like we have to force ourselves to believe it. We just know it. 
because we see it very, very clearly. That's the kind of evaluation uh, that we're being asked to, uh, to make in this situation. Okay. Any questions up to this point? Okay. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out there is a slight dilemma with regard to this. When I see this idea from Proverbs and from the Psalms, then I feel a religious obligation to make this kind of investigation. So what is motivating me is my religious feeling that I should make this investigation. And I don't really make a decision based on the investigation itself, but I can end up making it on the basis of my emotions. But I'm forced to make the investigation because I see that it's a religious commitment, and that can lead to my making it only because King Solomon and King David told me that I need to do it. But I don't necessarily see the idea clearly, and it's not the idea in that case that's motivating me. In other words, the problem here is, is since the Torah is telling me that I need to make this investigation, I could make the investigation, but it would only be superficial to satisfy my religious emotion because I want to do what the Torah tells me to do. It's not an investigation of reality and a search for truth. And we have to be very careful about the subtlety here. When an authority is telling me to think out something, but the thoughts aren't making the decision. In this case, it could be that my religious emotion is causing me to make the investigation, so when I investigate, I don't truly see the reality, and then I don't allow that reality to truly make the decision. So I have to be very careful here in making my investigation that I am sincerely trying to find the truth, and not just saying, oh yeah, well, okay, King David told me to go make this investigation, so uh, I guess I probably better do that. Yeah, everything looks fine. I think I'm on board. So a, a person could do that which is correct and which makes sense, but he's not necessarily doing it for a rational reason. For example, sometimes when people go to college, they recognize that they need college in order to advance in the business world. And some people will give that argument. But even if you argued against them, they would still hold to that argument and they would say those words when what is really motivating them is not that argument, but it's society's influence that they should go to college. And that is, in society's eyes, you know, going to college is the correct thing to do. But some people uh, will, you know, make an argument that's a rational argument but the real underlying reason of what's going on is an emotional reason where they're influenced, say, by society. So some people are motivated not by the real benefits, but because society says you should go to college, but then other people have really thought it through and they see the real benefit. Our job is to really make the investigation and see the real benefit. A second example that Rabbi Moskowitz gave, a little bit more subtle, uh, is that people sometimes uh, go to work for someone else. So uh, a person who owns his own business, that person sees the practical benefit of checking on everything about the business. 
But when a person works for somebody else and just has a job, sometimes they have that job just to make money. Uh, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes, that person's relationship with the boss isn't practical anymore. It's like a relationship with a parent or an authority figure. They make the boss their parent, and they expect the boss to relate to them like they're a child. So they've moved away from the practical, and they're projecting uh, a quasi-emotional relationship with their manager. Instead of just seeing it as a very practical thing where... I have a job, we have a business, have certain responsibilities, I have a boss, I report to him, uh, and so on and so forth. So the point here is that we have to be very careful about the subtleties of the emotions that sometimes drive us to do things where we can even fool ourselves and think that, yeah, I'm doing this for you know all the right reasons, when in fact something underneath those, those uh, rationally spoken reasons is the true motivation for why I'm doing that. So according to Rashi, this verse is advocating uh, in Proverbs that even in your religious life, you should do an evaluation. There is a different relationship to God when you go through everything and you analyze it and you then accept it. A different relationship than if you just accept it without the evaluation. The book of Proverbs is written for us beginners. And the beginning of life must be an evaluation of everything that we do. Even in our relationship to God, we shouldn't do it blindly, but we should make a real evaluation to see what the benefit is of that life and what the harm is or consequences of that life and make an evaluation accordingly. Now, this evaluation should be done after a person accepts the Torah. This is not an evaluation about accepting the Torah. That's a separate problem about whether one accepts the Torah. But this is the kind of evaluation we've done after we accept the truth of Torah, but to make sure that we completely understand very clearly, we've asked all the questions around it, why a person should live a Torah life, what the benefits are of that to us, not necessarily looking at the world to come, but looking specifically at this life in the physical world, getting up, going to work every day, all the stuff that we all have to do on a regular basis. Okay, any questions on any of this or this verse? Okay, good. Thank you. So let's move on. Now, we did verse 13 of chapter 15 based on Rashi. But now we're going to do a different interpretation based on the Rabbeinu Yonah. And Rabbi Moskowitz took uh, verses 13 through 15 together uh, because they all uh, center around one idea. So the verse reads, a happy heart has a good face, which means that it shows up on his face. In other words, he has a pleasant face. But with a sad heart, he has a broken spirit. Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah makes this one point, And his point, which uh, I'm sharing expressed in Rabbi Moskowitz's words, is like this. There are three things that a person needs in life. 
A person desires pleasure, practical success, and happiness. Pleasure, practical success, and happiness. Now, pleasure is a physical thing. Uh, if you jump into a cool pool on a hot day, you feel good. Uh, if it's a hot day and you take a nice long drink from a cool iced tea, you know, that's a physical thing. It's a physical pleasure. But happiness is within the person. And it's not from without. In other words, it's not external. A lot of people think they're happy when something good happens to them. Maybe they win a big prize or the lottery for millions of dollars. But that's not happiness. That's a momentary thing that passes. Rabbi Moskowitz is indicating here that, that happiness is within you. It's a certain state. It's a state where you have no conflicts. You accept reality for what it is, and that's that, and you thus have no conflicts. So it's a certain state of contentment. So this verse is saying, from the Rabbeinu Yonah's perspective, that happiness is caused from within the person, while sadness is also from within the person. And so if a person has sadness and pleasures, he won't be able to enjoy the pleasures. He could have a lot of pleasures around him, and yet he could still be depressed or down. So the verse is telling us that happiness and sadness comes from within the person. Now, the next verse, verse 14, says, The heart of a wise person searches knowledge, and the mouth of the fool either thinks foolishness or wants foolishness. Two different interpretations. The heart of a wise person searches knowledge, and the mouth of the fool either thinks foolishness or wants foolishness. So, what's the difference between those two possibilities of thinks foolishness or wants foolishness? A person who thinks incorrectly has incorrect desires. And a cure for this type of person is that he could straighten out this problem through his mind and have correct ideas, or he could straighten, out it, straighten it out through his desires, through his emotions. So the view of the foolish is based on an incorrect thought and an incorrect desire. The cure can sometimes be done by just changing your view of life. That's the simpler way. But if it cannot be cured that way, then you need to get involved with your emotions and look for the source of your incorrect view of life. So why does this follow, why does this verse follow from the last one? The Rabbeinu Yonah is saying one idea here. He's saying that the only way for happiness or a removal of sadness is through the mind. That's why he said the heart of the wise person searches knowledge. And the knowledge that he searches is really the second half of the verse. Second half of the verse is that he searches knowledge to make sure that he's not a fool. In other words, that he doesn't make foolish errors. So he notices when he makes mistakes, 
and he corrects them in the two ways that we just discussed. So according to King Solomon, happiness cannot come in any other way except through knowledge, because knowledge affects your inner life. And since happiness is dependent on your inner life, therefore you must have knowledge. And the knowledge changes your view of life, and then you're able to be happy. Okay. Now, the third verse says, this would be 1515, says, All the days of a poor person are difficult. However, a good heart is constantly at a feast, or could be at a party. Okay, all the days of a poor person are difficult. However, a good heart is constantly at a feast or at a party. So, this says that even though a person is poor, if he has a good heart or is happy and content, then he's equal to constantly being at a party. Now, the Villagon, who lived a couple hundred years ago, tries to explain what it means when it says being at a party constantly. So what does that mean? He says, and most of the commentaries say, that what this means is that it is really explaining a statement in Ethics of the Fathers, which says, who is a rich man? He who is happy with his lot. Okay? This is a, uh, a, a statement from Ethics of the Fathers you may be familiar with. Who is a rich man? He who is happy with his lot. So, this verse is explaining that idea. And the Vildagon explains the parable this way. He says, when a person is at a party and drinks any kind of spirits, alcohol, you know, wine, stronger drink, whatever, he doesn't worry about the king. But as soon as the effect of the alcohol goes away, then he comes back to reality, and then he's worried about the king again. But a person who has a good or a happy heart, a person who is happy with his lot, he's like always at the party. Okay? Now, how does that parable explain the idea of always being happy with your lot in life? And how do you stay at that level so that you're constantly at a party? Uh... I mean, what does that take, even though you're not drinking? You know, are, you, are you in your natural state? How does that work? So the Vilna Gon is giving a parable to explain how you accept your portion. When the, when the verse says, who is a rich man, he who is happy with his lot, or happy with his portion. But we have to understand how that parable works in everyday life. How is it that I can be a person who is constantly accepting any aspect of life. So Rabbi Moskowitz explained like this. He said there are two relationships with the king. One is that I know I can't compete with the king. And the second is that I'm always worried about what the king is thinking about me. I mean, the king runs the government, so what he thinks is could be pretty important in my life. 
Now, competition. Remember, the first was that I know I, the, my first possible relationship with the king is to recognize I can't compete with the king. Competition is always an evaluation of the self. Whenever you're in competition, you're measuring yourself in terms of the other person. So, for example, if, if you want to be uh, the, the world's high jump champion, well, what really matters to you is how high everybody else is jumping. Because as long as you can beat that, you're the best. It's not that you set a, a goal and say, you know what, I will be completely satisfied with myself if I can jump to this level, whatever it happens to be. You're constantly, when you're in competition, looking at what the other guys are doing. Because if they're going an inch above you, then, well, you need to go an inch above that in order to maintain your position and this idea in your mind that you have through the competition that I'm better than they are. So that's the thing that can drive us. And when a person is worried about what other people think of them, they end up making decisions based on what they want people to think of them. So that competition results in a feeling that when you compete with others and you always want people to think well of you, you'll do things to cause people to think of you in a certain way. And Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that these two things can be considered as the basis for unhappiness. Why? Because your value system, when you're operating in either of those modes, the mode of competition or the mode of worrying about what other people are thinking about you, your value system about how you make decisions in life is always based on others. It's not based on your own view. It's always based on the other guy. How I'm going to beat him, how I'm going to outdo him, or I'm worried about what he's thinking about me. Now, when a person drinks, he removes the outside world to a certain extent. I mean, you know, when a person gets somewhat happy from alcohol or inebriated or even farther to a drunken state, they have kind of removed themselves from all the issues of the outside world. And once a person does that, removes the outside world, then he only looks at himself. And with himself, he's very contented. He's very satisfied because he doesn't feel like he's failed in his competition with the other person, with the king, or with other people. What other people think doesn't bother him because he's just not involved with that. He's not even thinking about it. He's quite happy. So drinking removes the outside world and therefore a person ends up looking at himself only insofar as he's either content or not content. That is the person who is happy with his portion. The person who's happy with his portion only looks at his own emotions and his own needs and what satisfies him and what doesn't doesn't matter what other people think. So there's, since it doesn't matter what they think, there's no competition. And so that is a person who is happy with his portion. 
So, Rabbi Moskowitz is saying here that what you have to do is remove this relative value system. You've got to remove the value system that is relative to others. Your value system needs to be based on you, not on based on your relationship to others. And so that you are looking realistically at your own self and your own needs and basing your value system on that. For example, when it comes to money, you know, it's easy to look around and say, gee, you know, if I was just a millionaire, you know, everything would be great. Well, you get to a million dollars and then you discover, oh, a million dollars isn't what it used to be, you know. I really need five million. And then when you get to five, well, you know, I can't exactly have the, the boat and the, the you know, the, the third house that I really wanted. I, I really need 10 or 20 million. And people are constantly, uh, you know, one-upping. Or they're, they're looking around and saying, well, yeah, I got a million, but now that I'm in this new circle of friends, I mean, Harry, he's got five million. Joe, he's got seven, and gosh, Ted's got twelve. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a pauper in this group. I need to get with it and get some more. So there I end up in a competition situation, where instead of doing an evaluation and saying, you know, for the kind of house I want and the kind of food needs I have and the health needs I have, uh, and and looking realistically at what my rational expenses are in life, I could get by on this amount of money. Instead, a person can get caught up in, well, what do the other guys have? And, and what are they thinking of me? I mean, if I drive a five-year-old car, you know, are they going to think I'm really just uh, poor? So maybe I need to go out and buy a new one every year. And Linda, you're absolutely right. Keeping up with the Joneses. It's like, since when should I base my value system on the Joneses? You know, who knows if they're right on target? The other interesting thing about, about basing ourselves on what other people think is that it sort of makes the tacit assumption that they have their bead on what's really important. But what if they don't? What if they're chasing something that's a total fantasy? And I'm chasing after them. So we have to get away from this relative value system. And jealousy is included as part of this. It's part of competition. So if you don't have jealousy and you don't have competition and you don't worry about what people think of you, you can be satisfied, even as a poor person. You can be satisfied with your life. You can be very happy and you can be content with very, very little. Okay? There's an interesting statement made that uh, poor people think money will solve all their, all their problems. Rich people have no such illusions. Uh, we, we live in an era of relative value systems where we are constantly bombarded by various sources and the media and the internet and everything with what somebody else has that you don't. And boy, you should have it if you want your life to be worth anything. Uh, we have to get rid of that relative value system because that will cause us to be constantly chasing something we'll never get after and uh, never find instead of making a rational analysis of what we truly need and then working toward that. Now, we're not saying here that a person should not look outside himself. I mean, you have to view life and you have to analyze life and take into account things that are going on around you uh, and various events. But your value system should not be based on your relationship to people. Your value system should be an objective value system that you evaluate and then you become content with because it's based on 
your analysis of your needs and your situation. What we have to remove is the relative value system that is relative to other people and dependent on other people. And once we do that, we can basically have a very good life. So I will suggest that the reason why people want a lot and have to do so much in life is because of these three things, jealousy, competition, and or what people are going to think about them. The external world is for practicality and for pleasure and analysis and for studying and for trying to see God in the universe. That's all external. And the externals are definitely an important part of life. But they're not the basis on which we should build our happiness. Happiness comes from our view of life. Our view of life brings us happiness. And in order to get that, what we have to do is undo the relative value system uh, that we have and make sure that we have a value system based on an objective analysis of ourselves and our needs. Okay, any questions on those verses or any of these ideas? Okay, then we'll move on to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16. And this interesting verse reads, Better with less with the fear of the Lord than a great treasure and screaming in it. Better with less, uh, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, refers to less money. So better with less money with the fear of the Lord, and fear of the Lord meaning we do things honestly, than a great treasure and screaming in it. So as before, let me ask, what are the questions here? Better with less with the fear of the Lord than a, good a great treasure and screaming in it. What do you think? Okay, Vicky, great. How can there be screaming in a treasure? I mean, that seems almost like an oxymoron. People find a treasure, they're very happy. How could there be screaming? Very good point. It's a very interesting use of words by King Solomon. What else? So let me suggest a couple other possibilities. Uh, it says, uh, better is better with less, and we've defined less meaning less money, with the fear of the Lord, and we define that, okay, as doing things honestly, than a great treasure and screaming it. Okay, I think those are all the... Uh, the, the key ones, Janine, you've asked, what's the source of happiness, joy, and contentment? Uh, and I'm not sure uh, you mentioned, um, I'm not sure how that ties into the verse here. Maybe you could expand on that and help me out a little bit. Okay, great. Uh, trying to get to the issue that money is not its Torah in a relationship with Hashem. Very good. Yes, money is not going to be uh, the, the source of happiness, joy, and contentment. So according to Rashi, the term screaming in it means that a situation where people are complaining 
because a person stole from them and caused them to have great losses. So the people are complaining to him or taking him to court. So we got a situation where the way the person got the treasure, the, the great treasure referred to, was that they stole it. And then people are complaining about that, that, hey, this person stole it, uh, and or they're taking him to court. So, Rabbi Moskowitz asked an interesting question. He says, why does it say the fear of the Lord? I mean, it should say that the person doesn't want the screaming. Uh, he doesn't want the consequence. So why does it say that? And then second, if we're talking, according to Rashi, about someone who steals, why do they care about complaining or screaming? I mean, if a guy steals from people, he knows he's stealing. All he cares about is getting the treasure or, or having a loss. So why doesn't the verse say that the consequence is that he'll lose the money? I mean, the screaming against him is no great loss to him. He's not going to care about that. He just wants his money and doesn't want to lose it. So what is King Solomon saying here? And Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, By fear of the Lord, it means a person of justice. A person recognizes justice. Now, what is the benefit of being just? I mean, in other words, we're talking about a person who keeps a just system. And so we've got to ask, well, what's the benefit of keeping a just system? Why not go out and steal from people? I mean, yeah, we can, we can argue that, well, God gave us a law that, you know, in the seven Noahide laws is part of halacha that we can't steal. Okay, I accept that. But let's set that aside. Well, in just having a just system, apart from that, what's the practical benefit to me of keeping a just system? And really, that comes down to what's the benefit of a society at all? I mean, when we say justice, we say that you should maintain the society. And to maintain the society, there must be some benefit in society. So what's the benefit to it? And he suggested several. First... There is a, a Gemara in the Talmud, a spot in the Talmud that says that Adam had to raise the sheep and shear the sheep and clean the wool or clean the, the yeah, clean the, the wool itself and then make it into uh, fabric and then turn it into clothing. What do we do? We walk into the store and pull the clothing ready-made off the rack. Adam had to plow the ground, sow the ground, make sure that the weeds were controlled, cut the grain, grind it into flour, and then make it into bread. What do we do? We walk in a supermarket and we buy the bread already made. So one benefit of a society is that each of us can have an easier life because everyone does their individualized job and there is a big gain to that. We have things much easier and more time for ourselves because we don't have to do every single step in the process. We have people who do it for us 
And yes, we have to go out and earn a living in order to have money to buy that bread or to buy those clothes. But we don't have to know all those individual skills in order to be able to do that. I could be a shoemaker, not know the first thing about farming, but I'm able to use my shoemaking skills to earn money to be able to go buy food to put on the table for my family. So there's a big benefit in having an organized society where people trade their skills uh, you know, back and forth uh, that makes it much easier for me to get the things that I need. Second, societies have a police force. Police force protects us from criminals. We have an army, or most countries have an army that protects them from foreign nations. So the society gives us a certain amount of protection. I mean, in certain societies, if you get into particular kinds of difficulties, the society will step in and protect you. In some cases, if you can't work, the society will take care of you. So there are a lot of benefits to having a society. On the other hand, there's also a benefit to a person being independent, to being able to earn their own living and make their own way. And a person needs a certain amount of that as well. But by having a society, you don't have to learn every single skill and be an expert in every single thing. So the verse is saying that even if you end up making less money, it's better to live in a just society. This is better than thinking you're totally self-sufficient, that you're completely independent, that you don't need anybody. I mean, the, the kind of thinking we want to avoid here is, you know, I'm totally independent, I'm my own man, I'm going to make millions of dollars, I don't need anybody else. That type of thinking is against reality and can lead to the destruction of the society. And that's what it means when the verse says that the people are screaming against him. It means there is a breakdown of the society because he is saying, you know, I'll, I'll go steal this great treasure. And people are screaming at him. Why? Because that is a breakdown of the society of the rules of property, of the rules of justice. And there's one more mistake that he's making. The person who does that is breaking down society and he will eventually suffer the consequences because of the acts that he's doing that are causing people to scream at him. He's breaking down the very society that allows him to live the life that he has. <clears throat> so by saying that, hey, I'm completely independent, I don't need anybody else, he's failing to recognize how dependent he actually is on the society around him in order to be able to do those seemingly independent acts. So by doing, the, you know, stealing the treasure and the screaming in it, he is breaking down the very society that he lives in, and ultimately he will destroy himself. And he'll destroy himself in one of two ways. Either he won't have the benefits of society, or he won't have the protections that the society affords him. And so he'll ultimately be destroyed by the people of the society because there will be no one to protect him. Any questions on this verse? In that case, we will stop for the evening. Uh, thank you all very much for joining the class. 
and I hope you will be able to uh, join us next week. We'll be back here at uh, the same time, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Thanks very much, and everyone have a great week and a great Yom Kippur, which is uh, next Saturday. Be well, everyone. Thanks.